What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and theringer.com. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is about the end of the everything boom and the wide ripple effects of the Federal Reserve's latest interest rate announcement. For the last decade plus, basically every asset class you can name has gone to the moon. Stocks up, housing up, crypto up. That was the everything boom and it's over. It was over when the stock market crashed into bear territory this week. It was over when the housing market U-turned earlier this month and home buying screeched to a halt. And it is definitely, definitely over now that the Fed today on Wednesday afternoon announced it's raising interest rates by 75 basis points, which is nerd speak for 0.75 percentage points. This is the highest interest rate increase in 28 years. Today's guest is Kevin Roos. Kevin and I in this episode talk about Fed policy, interest rates, crypto, the everything boom. But before we get to that interview, I wanna do a few words on this historic rate announcement specifically, what the Federal Reserve is doing and what the Federal Reserve is telling us it will do in the future. And we're gonna do this in a typical plain Englishy evidence versus interpretation breakdown. So first the evidence, no editorializing, this is just what happened. The Fed raised its target interest rate by 0.75 percentage points and sharply raised its projection of rate increases over the next year, right? Basically, interest rates are going up faster than we thought they would, and they will continue to go up higher than we anticipated, say, six months ago. The Federal Reserve also comes out with new forecasts for the economy when it raises interest rates, and it now projects lower GDP growth and higher unemployment. 
Now, in the short term for you as a consumer, this means borrowing costs are going to get higher, mortgage interest rates are going to go up, auto loans are going to get more expensive. All right, so that's all the, the what. Now, this is the interpretation. This is me editorializing here, okay? I think the Fed's freaked out. I think the Fed is freaked out by the inflation data, by the stickiness of the inflation data. It is newly resolved to do whatever it can to bring down inflation. And that means it is willing to risk a recession. I think what the Fed is telling us in a lot of subtle different ways is that we, the Fed, quote, we are willing to take this economy into a recession to cure the inflation bug. You go to the numbers here. The Fed is projecting three straight years of unemployment rates rising, three straight years of rising joblessness. You go back to recent history, that just doesn't happen outside of a recession. So when the Fed says we are projecting that joblessness is just going to go up and up and up in 2023 and four and five, that's them saying, be prepared for a recession. And this is all a part of the Fed just falling behind the eight ball here. Last year, the Fed projected that its preferred inflation measure was going to end 2022 around 2.6%. Now they say it's going to be 5.2%. 5.2 is two times higher than 2.6. There's just no way around the fact that the Fed has a massive whiff here, a massive mistake on its hands, and it is trying desperately to correct that mistake, earn the trust of markets, and tell people we are willing to risk a recession to bring down inflation. Now, whether that's good or bad, we'll say that for future episodes, but that is what I think the Fed is saying right now. Be prepared for a slowdown. Be prepared maybe for a downturn. Now on to the end of the Everything Boom. I'm Derek Thompson, and this is Plain English. Kevin Roos, my friend, welcome back to the podcast. Derek, what a pleasure. Uh, The theme of today's episode, which I am taking directly from our email exchange, Kevin, is the end of the everything boom. So I want to start by asking, what does the everything boom mean to you, and why do you think it's ending? Well, the everything boom is not my phrase. It's it's been appearing in in stories for a while, but it's basically this period that we've been in, this multi-year, sort of, you could call it 14-year Uh, bull market um, in which basically anywhere you put your money in the market, you were going to make money. Um, We had stocks that have been just like, you know, growing and growing and growing. Um, We had, uh, you know, real estate market was growing and growing and growing. Um, All of these, uh, you know, companies were awash in cash. We just had this, um, this, this cycle where money was essentially free um, because of the decisions of the Federal Reserve, which implemented what we tend to call a a zero interest rate policy or a ZERP. One of my favorite uh, blog posts uh, of the past few years um, was by uh, my friend Ranjan Roy, who um, has a a theory called ZERP explains the world. And it's basically this sort of theory, which I, I, I mostly but don't totally agree with, that everything weird in our economy for the past 10 years has been related in some pretty direct way to the availability of 
very, very low interest rate money. Um, money that you know was not free in technical terms. Uh, usually there's some nominal interest rate, but it's definitely low. Um, and that, that ex- the availability of that money just kind of distorts uh, the entire economy. Uh, because distorts or at least uh, affects the entire economy. I mean, do, do, I, I I only want to you know amend the term distort because you know a lot of things that in the last fourteen years that were happening were weird, but a lot of things were also wonderful. You know, there were some wonderful things that were happening in terms of you know we had slow labor market recovery that was happening. You had people spending money on not only durable items but also services. It was easy to get money if you were starting a company, and I I'm very attracted to this idea. I love universal theories of everything. Thing. And I'm very attracted to this idea that if you sort of like peeked behind the curtain of every single weird phenomenon, whether it was cheap Uber prices or a slurry of crypto companies or, you know, just an easy, it's easy to get a car loan. You peek behind the curtain and, oh, there it is. That's why this is happening. It's because interest rates are incredibly low and not only were the interest rates low, but also the Federal Reserve and a bunch of other central banks were injecting liquidity into the system through quantitative easing. They would buy assets from banks, they'd give the banks money. Suddenly the banks are like, wow, I got all this cash. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna lend it. And that would also pull down interest rates, make it easier for people to buy houses. So I, I agree, this is, it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon that basically all the weirdness and the wonderfulness of the last few years has, you can trace back to this zero interest rate policy. You can trace it back to ZERP. Yeah, and it makes sense in like a classical economics perspective. If you can get, you know, better yield, um, more if you can get more interest investing in riskier things as you have been able to do for the past 10 years. Like your savings, your bank was maybe going to pay you 0.1% interest on a savings account um, with them, which is basically a negative interest rate. So investors went looking for riskier stuff, um, not just individuals like companies, hedge funds, private equity firms, angel investors, venture capitalists, um, you know, SoftBank. Like they all just went looking for more and more yield. And that resulted in these kind of risky propositions becoming very viable. It resulted in, you know, dog walking companies raising billions of dollars from from venture capitalists. It resulted in cheap Uber prices. It resulted in crypto because we had all of a sudden this asset class that seemed to be doing better for people in a in a return sense than just stashing their money away in a savings account somewhere. This is a great summary of the ZERP explains the world thesis. It's basically that ZERP makes the crazy rational. It is crazy to think that a dog walking company should be worth, you know, $5 billion. It is crazy to think that a real estate company like WeWork should be worth $100 billion. But as long as you are holding fast the idea that interest rates are going to be zero basically forever and money is going to be basically free forever, you're looking for these yields. You're looking to build the next Amazon of the future. And so you have all these venture capitalists that are throwing money at these companies willing to subsidize you know, the next Amazon. I actually want to I want to take a half step back and read this article that economics writer Neil Irwin, uh, your uh, former colleague, wrote for the New York Times. It goes, quote, around the world, nearly every asset class is expensive by historical standards. This is basically your list, Kevin. Stocks and bonds, emerging markets and advanced economies, urban office towers in Iowa farmland, you name it, and it is trading at prices that are high by historical standards. End quote. When did Neil write this? 2020? 2017? No, <laughs> Neil wrote this in July, July 7th, 2014. 
Eight years ago, he was diagnosing the everything boom in the middle of the Obama administration. So the Jenga tower that is toppling right now has been under construction for a long, long time. And you gave me the perfect segue, which is that this you have this sneaky side effect of the everything boom, which is that when stocks are trading at prices that are historically high, it means relatively low returns for investors, which means they want to put their money into riskier bets. And when they put their money into companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Postmates and all these Uber for ex-consumer tech companies that were floating around the world in the late 2010s, you have the beginning of something that you and I have called the millennial consumer subsidy or the millennial lifestyle subsidy. Kevin, how would you define this millennial lifestyle subsidy that emerged from the swamp of ZERP? <laughs> well, I'm glad we're we're settling the debate over nomenclature today because you and I have both. I think we. I think I might have stolen it from you originally, and then, uh, well. So this is actually this is a this is a tiny arcane internet debate right now. But what <laughs> happened was in 2019, you and I were tweeting back and forth about this phenomenon that you are about to explain the phenomenon of venture capitalists essentially subsidizing the life of millennials, and then I think you said it's. It's as if they're subsidizing millennial lifestyles. Then I wrote an article for The Atlantic about it. And then you wrote an article for The New York Times about it. And then I wrote an article for The Atlantic about it. And so <laughs> now we are coming together and sharing a conversation live about this subject that I believe we've only tweeted about. So um, yeah, explain what this is, the millennial, let's just call it lifestyle subsidy. Yes, it's a cheeky way of referring to the the way that a certain type of startup has attempted to grow in the past uh, ten or fifteen years, and um, this is you know best exemplified by things like Uber, but there are a million examples. I'm sure we can all uh, name them. They um, they sort of at their peak ran the gamut from you know parking apps to uh, you know mobile restaurants to just every part of the economy had some very well-funded VC-backed startup trying to expand through artificially low pricing. So I'll explain what that means. So basically, the, the playbook of business over time is that you try to do something, provide some good or service, and charge more for it than it costs you to produce, right? Like that is a pretty basic you know, if you were going to start a sandwich shop and your ingredients cost $5, you're probably going to sell the sandwich for $10 or $8. Um, a but, number higher than five, for sure. Ex exactly. And uh, what happened is that a bunch of investors decided uh, that the a more promising way to grow a business uh, at scale was to effectively sell below cost was to take your Uber ride, your lunch, your dog walking uh, experience, and through promo codes and discounts and introductory offers to essentially sell that $5 sandwich for like $4 or $3. And the idea was that in all of these companies was that you, you do this for a while, you use venture funding to expand aggressively, you gain as much market share as possible, you elbow all your competitors out of the market. And then once you have basically established a monopoly through these artificially low prices, then you get pricing power. Then you can jack up your rates. Consumers don't have any other choices. You are the entire market for dog walking or Ubers or, you know, lunches Bologna delivered sandwiches. to you. Yep. 
And then you have the best of both worlds. You have no competitors, you're able to set your own prices, and you win. And this model um, has been not just like a, a fringe model in Silicon Valley, this has been like kind of the main way that VC-backed startups in consumer marketplaces have tried to expand in the past 10 years. And uh, it has been... Uh, phenomenally unsuccessful for the investors and the companies, but it has been kind of nice to be like an urban millennial who like wants to get below cost goods and services. Um, it basically sort of financed, uh, I think as I put it in my piece, it allowed us to live like Balenciaga lifestyles on a banana Republic budget. <laughs> uh, we were all getting chauffeured around and free lunches. And, uh, and now that's over. Although I should say there is one place where the millennial lifestyle subsidy still exists. The only thing I want to edit there is that you mentioned that it's not necessarily been a good deal for investors. It certainly hasn't been a good deal for investors, especially those that came on late in the life cycle of these companies. But if you're like Jason Calacanis and you're like an angel investor in Uber and Lyft, you know, you got in on these companies and they were worth like $5 million. Like they're not worth $5 million now. They're worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. So that equity that you have is now worth quite a lot of money. So right now, the millennial subs lifestyle subsidy seems to be going away. You look at your Lyft and Uber prices, they are way higher than they used to be. You look at your DoorDash prices, your Postmate prices, much higher than they used to be. And this is because as interest rates are rising and these companies feel like they have to husband their cash, they can't burn money like they used to, which means they have to be profitable on a unit economic basis, on a ride per ride basis. And that means that prices are going up across the board for these millennial lifestyle subsidy companies. You said there's an exception to this rule, Kevin. What is the exception to this rule? <laughs> well, I'm a little hesitant to give it away because it's like the one joy uh, left <laughs> in my uh, in my daily spending. But um, in the in the Bay Area, at least, there are these like fast delivery apps. Have you seen these? These like 15 minute like sort of get you know get your I don't know your uh, diet coke and Oreos delivered in 15 minutes. Um, I I don't think this is going to last very long. But there are a bunch of startups um, that raise billions of dollars and are doing essentially, uh, you know, Uber for groceries. And uh, and in the Bay Area, the one the one everyone uses out here is called Popcorn, and uh, it's just phenomenally unprofitable. Like I don't have any <laughs> access to their uh, internal corporate financials, but like you know, the other day. They, they they were running this like crazy promotion. It was like fifty percent off your your first order, and so everyone I knew was just like texting each other, like go get like half price groceries from Popcorn, and uh, and so you know I did. I like filled up my fridge uh, with like you know groceries that were essentially half price, and and like th to be clear, like they're they're not getting a special deal on those groceries. They are just purely like it's like the venture capitalists are just like stapling. <laughs> <laughs> bills to every order and like <laughs> handing them to you. Um, and so uh, that's that's the one place in the economy, I think, that is still experiencing a little bit of subsidy like that. Um, but yeah, the, the glory days of, of artificially cheap Ubers and, uh, and other, other um, you know, sort of Uber for X startups uh, appears to be over. I'm glad to know that there's like a little kernel of nostalgia that's holding out in San Francisco, at least, <laughs> that you are still getting your it really Oreos felt like the old days with VC like the group, the group texts are like, are like filling up with referral codes and people are like, they're just running a new promo. So it's, <laughs> it, it, we've all gotten... The, the, the other thing that I think the 
millennial lifestyle subsidy created was like extreme hyper awareness on the part of consumers. Like when you are getting a, a deal that is objectively too good to be true. Uh, I think I, I most uh, recognized this uh, a couple summers ago when like everyone I know started getting really into MoviePass. Uh, this was the summer before uh, MoviePass collapsed and it was like they were offering this like insane deal, which like was all the movies you could watch in a theater for like $10 a month. And like if you saw one movie, it was worth it. And if you saw more than one movie, MoviePass was essentially like giving you free tickets to the movies while paying for them themselves. So it was like a deal that everyone at the time was like, this makes no sense. I'm definitely going to take advantage of this and like go see every movie I've ever wanted to see. Um, so that was uh, that was a moment in time that I don't think we'll get back for, for quite a while. MoviePass just seemed like absolute magic. I mean, it really did feel like for a brief period of time, a company in a capitalist system had just like forgotten how to do a capitalism and was just like, we're just going to basically be a charity for people who love sitting in movie theaters. We're just going to give you money in exchange for doing that, which you were always going to do anyway, which is just see the movies you want to see. Like it, it really, it really was like an amazing, beautiful psyop. And when it ended, it was, it was tragic, but at the same time, it, it made me feel like a little bit sane, like while MoviePass was taking off, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, of course, I would love everyone who loves movies to be able to be paid to watch movies. But this just, this just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and when the company finally went under, I was like, this sucks on the one hand. But on the other hand, my sense that reality has like an underlying sense to it uh, has been restored. And to a certain extent, that's kind of what coming out of the millennial lifestyle subsidy has been like. It's like all these little inklings that you felt over the last few years, like, that price can't be right. This price can't be right. There's no way this company can actually exist in the long term. Well, it turns out that if you raise interest rates by literally 25 basis points, the company, poof, disappears because it cannot survive uh, the subtlest rate increase. So this takes us it's like, to- Yeah, it's like discovering that gravity still exists or something. It, there's a, something reassuring about it. And and I I, I know we're, we're trying to move on, but I want to make one more point about the millennial lifestyle subsidy, which is that we're sort of being tongue-in-cheek about how it's been just like this amazing thing for consumers and, and uh, you know, for us uh, yuppies who want cheap Ubers. There is a cost to all of this. Um, it's not- totally free. Um, a lot of these startups relied on a, uh, a, the availability of cheap labor um, that was, you know, drivers were getting squeezed, delivery folks were getting squeezed. Um, the, the gains of the millennial lifestyle subsidy did not necessarily flow to the people who actually provided the services. And it also was bad for small and local businesses who didn't have access to uh, billions of dollars in cheap capital and had to actually sell sandwiches for more than they cost to make. Um, it's really, really hard to compete in a market where SoftBank or the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund or someone else is just showing up and showering cash on some startup that is doing what you do, except they don't have to make money doing it. So there, there has been a cost to the millennial lifestyle subsidy era. I don't think it's a totally benevolent uh, uh, scheme, but... Um, but I do think that it it has given people a false sense of what kind of lifestyle they can afford. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Just to connect a few dots here, because I think the story you're pointing to is so interesting and so important. When we came out of the Great Recession, the housing market was in shambles. It was disgusting. And aggregate demand, consumer spending, was very weak. 
So the Fed comes in and says, we're going to keep interest rates really low. We're going to have aggressive quantitative easing because we want to stimulate the housing market. We want to get consumer spending back on track. Now, this was really good for Wall Street prices. It was really good for raising asset prices. But low interest rates reflected something broken on Main Street. It reflected weak labor markets. So a lot of people were driving an Uber or delivering Thai food because they didn't have competing job offers that would clearly pay more per week. So there's a story here in the biggest picture about how the Great Recession created the necessary economic conditions for companies like Uber to thrive. And that means that the millennial consumer subsidy that we're like, you know, kind of joking about here is in a kind of dark way, an expression of weak aggregate demand. Like watch the dominoes here. Weak labor markets meant lots of low-wage workers, contributed to low interest rates, and that meant plentiful, cheap Ubers. But all of this has changed. All of it has changed. Job openings have hit record highs. Quits have hit record highs. Nominal wages are rising fastest for low-income workers. The labor market has recovered really nicely from a pandemic flash fees recession. And this has coincided with inflation. So now interest rates are going up. And now all this is showing up in the high Uber prices that you're looking at on your phone. Like, again, in the biggest picture, I won't belabor this point any anymore, but basically, you can tell an entire history of 21st century economics through the price of an Uber ride. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Now, another category that's gotten walloped here by rising interest rates is crypto. Bitcoin is down 70%. Large crypto companies like Coinbase are laying off one-fifth, one-third of their workforce. 
Kevin, let's start with the big picture here in crypto land, and then we'll descend through the clouds to see the carnage up close. How would you summarize the disaster zone in crypto right now? Well, I think it's related to the end of the everything boom. Um, This is the end of a historic bull market, um, period, like in every asset class, including crypto. And in an environment where, you know, stocks are going down, um, you know, uh, real estate's going down, people are, are losing their jobs, people tend to try to get rid of their riskiest assets first. And for a lot of people who invest in crypto, like crypto is the riskiest thing that they own. And so that's going to be the thing that they that they get rid of first. And crypto has also historically had a, a very sort of basically a four-year boom and bust cycle. Like every four years, crypto crashes. Um, it happened in 2014. It happened in 2018. And now it's happening in 2022, like clockwork. Um, and so what's happening in the crypto market is essentially what's happening in the stock market. Um, you know, uh, crypto is not the only thing that's down 70% from its all-time highs. Um, Netflix is too, for example. Um and so you have investors who are pulling back from crypto. You also uh, have these sort of spectacular blowups and failures that have happened in the crypto market in the past few months that I think are making um, people skittish uh, when it comes to holding any crypto assets at all. One interesting distinction between, let's say, Bitcoin and Netflix, because you're absolutely right, they've both fallen by basically the exact same percentage amount, is that No one ever talked about Netflix as being an inflation hedge. Quite the opposite. It was very clear that Netflix was a bet on growth. This was a low-profit company that was growing subscribers quickly, and the faith that Netflix's valuation should be as high as it was in 2019 and 2020 was in part a bet on the future of cheap money that would allow Netflix to continue to spend $20 billion every single year while turning a small profit. You look at Bitcoin, it's the opposite. A lot of people were pointing at Bitcoin as digital gold. Digital gold, at least here, representing the possibility of it being an inflation hedge. Well, now inflation, at least headline inflation, is 8.6%. Core inflation is really high, and Bitcoin is getting its teeth knocked out. So it's 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 interesting that when you look at how people actually treated Bitcoin, they talked about it like it was digital gold. They talked about it like a potential inflation hedge, but they treated it like essentially a tech stock on steroids. Um, When you talk to people in crypto right now who are working on crypto projects, big or small, what are they saying? Are are they, is there a sense of gallows humor? Are they like, we are completely screwed. This is the end of the party. Are they optimistic? There'll be a kind of like trampoline effect here where it's kind of like the dot-com crash where a lot of companies like Amazon lose almost all of their valuation, but then they bounce back the next 10 years and become giants that rule the world. What's the vibe right now in crypto land? Yeah, there's a lot of gallows humor. There are a lot of memes about, you know, going to work at McDonald's um, now that my crypto startup has <laughs> has tanked. Um, there's a lot of really like depressing, um, like the, the cryptocurrency subreddits uh, that I w- have been browsing over the past week. It's bleak out there. People are losing their shirts. Um, there's just no, no two ways about it. And the way that people who, you know, crypto has like, I would say like a culture of, of, um, of sort of toxic positivity. And, and this is, you know, 
functions in some ways like a like a religion. And so you have people who are saying this is good for crypto, that all the prices are falling because it's clearing out the casual tourists and the speculators and the people who are going to be left are the builders. And like, you know, high prices attract a certain kind of person to invest and work in the crypto industry. And those kind of people aren't in it for the right reasons. The joke is that like everyone who's who's going to be left is like in it for the tech. Um, and so now they say we'll have this period where like prices have uh, crashed and there will still be startups building things and infrastructure. And they'll say, you know, all these, you know, big crypto companies, like a lot of them started during the the last crypto winter. Um, and so they are sort of trying to, I guess, put a happy face on what is a pretty cataclysmic event for them. But yeah, I mean, if you catch them in their less guarded, less sort of positive spinny moments, they'll say like, yeah, this is, this is horrible. We're all laying off people. Um, we all, uh, feel like the, you know, we're, we're waiting for the bottom. Um, I want to ask about a specific crypto project to maybe see some of the disaster at a close-up level. Um, of all the specific examples that you can think of, Bitcoin, the stable coins that have collapsed, some of the individual companies like Coinbase or Celsius that have had a really, really hard time in the last few months, what to you is like the most interesting Icarus story in this whole space that you think the story of this company really goes a long way to explaining what's happening in crypto and what the spillover effects might be? Well, I've been really fascinated this week by what's happening to Celsius. Um, Celsius right, tell us what Celsius is. Yeah, so Celsius is sort of like a crypto quasi-bank. Like, it's not a bank. Um, it It's not regulated like a bank. Uh, but they are... They take uh, deposits and lend and give people yield on their assets. Um, it's basically like a, a little crypto quasi bank. And Celsius is not little, actually. It's it at its peak. It had something like you know almost two million users, like twenty five billion dollars in assets. Like it's a big, big firm in the crypto space. And it was one of the kind of more legit seeming ones. Like it was raising money from all these like the the um, like this Canadian pension fund, like gave it a bunch of money um, in a recent fundraising round. And the way that Celsius worked was basically that they would, um, they would, you would deposit your crypto with them and they would give you some interest rate back on that crypto, um, which was much, much higher than anything that you would get from your regular old bank. Um, so they were paying, you know, anywhere between like, five and 18 percent on uh on crypto deposits depending on the asset and what they and this is just money that's held in the bank like i just I, I have some crypto coins i deposit them in celsius it's basically in like in like a checking account and they're giving me five percent interest on that checking account no so they're turning around and going out and and looking for basically they they are taking those deposits and like a bank they're going out and and turning around and lending them and and you know using them in other ways and their model was basically we pay you say 5% on your bitcoin deposits and then anything we can earn with your bitcoin above and beyond that 5% we get to keep um and so they were going out and and basically uh trying to put people's deposits in things that would make more money than they were paying out on interest. And one of the ways that they did this um, was sort of interesting. Um, this was something that they did called staking. 
And staking in crypto is basically uh, when you promise to lock up a certain amount of crypto for a period of time in exchange for interest or certain other rewards. Um, and they did this with uh, with millions and millions of, of dollars. And it um, it turned out to be kind of one of the things that uh, is is now putting them in a lot of trouble. You know, listening to you now, I'm realizing that crypto is also a deep story about the legacy of the Great Recession. You know, like maybe if listeners come away from this episode with one lesson, it is that when it comes to the financial crisis of 2008, the past isn't over and it's not even past. You know, part of the appeal of crypto, I think, has always been that the 2008 financial crisis exposed the banking system as broken and often quite corrupt. Like banks were supposed to be responsible, but instead they were incredibly reckless and they helped to blow up the world. And what crypto promises, or at least what, to be specific, decentralized finance promises to a lot of people, is that we'll solve the banking problems that were laid bare by the financial crisis. But this is a point that Matt Levine and Joe Eisenthal at Bloomberg make all the time. The way that crypto solves these problems often makes the problems much, 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 much worse. Like think about what Celsius is promising here. Celsius is basically like, hey, you know how traditional banks are broken pieces of shit that take your money, offer unrealistic promises, but then make a bunch of reckless trades and lose your money? Well, what we're going to do is uh, take your money, offer unrealistic promises, make a bunch of reckless trades, and then lose your money. And oh, by the way, the money won't be insured by the FDIC. Uh, hooray, innovation, you lost your deposit. I mean, I, I'm laughing here, but like people are losing incredible amounts of money and it's awful. It's really bad. And I'm not going to accuse Celsius of fraud because I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to get sued for defamation. But I will report that other people are using the F word very liberally right now about crypto. There are lawsuits being brought against companies and celebrity endorsers, Kim Kardashian, Floyd Mayweather. And the claimants are basically saying, crypto scammed us. We trusted them. They lost our money. Kevin, how serious do you think these crypto lawsuits are right now? Oh, I think we certainly will see a spate of lawsuits. Like, that's pretty clear to me. Um, whether they'll succeed, I, I'm not so sure. I think the key issue is, like, what representations were these crypto companies making? Like, were they saying, we can guarantee you 8% yield? Um, or were they saying, you know, here's, a, here's an idea for an investment that we have. You should do it. But, like, by the way, you could lose all your money. Um, I think the the sort of relevant issue in, in securities law will be: Did they uh, were they promising things that they that they knew to be false that they didn't deliver on? Um, and I think that's the question that I think there are certainly going to be cases where that happened. Um, and I think that it's also sort of relevant. Uh, like, I don't think any, I don't think Matt Damon is, is likely to go to jail for appearing in a, a Super Bowl. <laughs> um, but I do think that, you know, a lot of celebrities uh, promoted sort of projects that they didn't fully understand, um, that they were just cashing the check for. Um, and I think um, a lot of them, you know, were sort of pawns in this larger sort of... You're, effort to make crypto consumer friendly and make it appear uh, riskless and non-threatening and uh, what was you know what was really happening under the hood as we now know that a lot of these like you know these 
program these uh, companies that were promising you know safe returns were actually investing in all kinds of risky stuff under the hood um and so i think yeah the people who have been involved in in you know pumping and promoting the space like i think they uh, they should be doing some uh, serious self reflection last question for you about the crypto apocalypse um why should normies care if you're someone who never got into the crypto hype you always thought this space was kind of stupid you're feeling really really satisfied about the predictions that you made about crypto right now that it's just red, red, red across this entire asset class. Why should those people care about the story starting right now? The early, the people who were early in crypto, the people who were sort of the big winners in crypto, a lot of them have cashed out um, or they've, they've moved money out of the crypto market. And they're just rich people now. Like they're not going to be less, I mean, they'll be less rich, um, but they won't. That, you know, so there will still be crypto billionaires, and those crypto billionaires will still have lots of money and will have lots of ideas about how the world should work. And they are going to plow that money into elections. They are going to plow that money into think tanks and nonprofits. I think that you you should understand that there the people who are deep into crypto are going to stay deep into it, and they are um, they are committed to making this happen, and they have some of them quite a lot of money and quite a lot of influence. You've made this point before in the podcast, and I think it's a great point to end with. I am uncertain about the future of crypto as a class of innovations. I am much more certain about crypto as a means by which lots of extremely rich people have been made extremely rich. And it is important, I think, to continue to follow any space whose ideology and philosophy you have to stay on top of in order to understand the future of where rich people are going to spend their money. They're going to have a huge impact, I think, on the future of politics, on the future of business, on the future of names of sports stadiums, on the future of regulation. And I think understanding what they want from the world is really, really important. Kevin Roos, thank you very much, my friend, as always, and we will have you back in the pod very soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you have a comment, a concern, a question, an idea for a future show, please email us at plainenglish at spotify.com. That's plain, no space, English at spotify.com. 